week, Akhtar plaintiffs in Mallinckrodt cases argue that plan is sub rosa substantive consolidation, and Bombardier issues new unsecured notes to lock up consent solicitation. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. We would also like to welcome Julian Boulan from our Covenants team, who will be joining the podcast. Later on, we'll discuss the ERCOT securitization bill in the Texas Senate, the latest in the Boy Scouts bankruptcy cases, and a recent prepackaged plan filing by the New York REIT Hospitality Investors Trust. For this week's deep dive, Reorg Sean Daly and Mike Leggy will discuss a recent decision in the Sanchez energy bankruptcy cases, which may be the first in a recent trend of midstream contract rejection decisions to explicitly authorize the rejection of a midstream agreement despite the presence of covenants that remain with the land regardless of ownership. It's Friday, May 21st. Malakrat bankruptcy cases, a group of private Akhtar plaintiffs led by the city of Rockford renewed a previously withdrawn request for appointment of a Chapter 11 trustee. Quoting the proverb, with great power comes great responsibility attributed to the Spider-Man comics, the Akhtar plaintiffs accused the debtors of abusing their powers as debtors in possession and creditor fiduciaries under the bankruptcy code by using them, quote, not as a shield to protect the debtors, but as a sword to harm the valid creditors of the debtors. The Akhtar plaintiffs include parties who commenced class action antitrust suits in connection with the debtors' Akhtar gel products before the debtors entered bankruptcy. The Akhtar plaintiffs have asserted claims in excess of $10 billion. In an apparent effort to end-run the debtors' objection to the plaintiffs' class claims, the Akhtar plaintiffs also filed a motion for relief from the automatic state to allow the district court handling the Rockford litigation to consider their plaintiffs' motion for class certification. The private Akhtar plaintiffs argue that the debtor's plan affects a sub-rosa substantive consolidation of the debtor's specialty brands and special generics businesses with the debtor's parent entities and urge the court to separately consider the debtor's specialty generics business, which they characterize as a worthless opioid peddling side of the company, and the specialty brand's business which markets Akhtar. According to the plaintiffs, the allocation under the plan of $1.6 billion in cash and warrants for 19.99% of the reorganized equity to opioid claimants fails to account for $3.3 billion in potentially avoidable transfers from specialty brands' businesses to overseas parent entities. The current plan contemplates the establishment of an opioid claims trust funded with $1.6 billion over seven years and warrants for 19.99% of reorganized equity at a $1.551 billion equity value strike price and a $260 million governmental Akhtar claim settlement. First lien revolving facility claims would be paid in full in cash, first lien term loans would be either paid in full in cash or issued new take-back term loans, and first and second lien notes would be either reinstated or receive the new first or second lien crammed down notes, depending on the outcome of litigation on the secured note holders make whole claims. Unsecured note holders would receive $375 million in new seven-year second lien notes plus 100% of reorganized equity subject to dilution. General unsecured creditors that accept the plan as a class, including the private actor antitrust claimants, would share a cash pool of $100 million. Canadian transportation company Bombardier appears to have issued new 2034 unsecured notes to a sympathetic bondholder to secure enough votes for its consent solicitation, according to sources. The company said Tuesday that it had sold an additional $260 million of the notes to an institutional investor increasing the principal amount of the series to $510 million. Bombardier said it has secured the support of holders of a majority of the 2034 notes to pass an amendment to the bond indenture to waive an alleged default arising from asset sales. 
Boy Schiller Flexner on behalf of Antara Capital, which owns roughly $83 million of face value of the 2034 notes, has claimed that Bombardier's asset sales cover all or substantially all of the company's business, violating covenants in the 2034 notes indenture. According to America's Covenants by Reorg, the holder of the newly issued $260 million of 2034 notes, which now owns a majority of the issuance, can unilaterally accelerate or prevent acceleration of the notes and generally waive past defaults as a result of their majority position. The recent move by Bombardier, which appears designed to dilute the voting power of the pre-existing 2034 note holders, represents the latest such maneuver following Windstream's issuance of new notes to waive an alleged default in 2017 and Revlon's incurrence of incremental loans to facilitate a recapitalization last year. Last week, Bombardier said that it received consents from the requisite holders of its 2027 notes. Reorg had earlier reported that an ad hoc group holding more than a majority of 2027 notes had formed, but that was prior to the company reporting receiving consents from note holders. Hospitality Investors Trust, a New York-based non-traded real estate investment trust focused on hotel properties throughout the U.S., filed for Chapter 11 protection on Wednesday in Delaware. The debtor's capital structure includes no funded debt, but does include approximately $1.3 billion of unsecured obligations, consisting primarily of unsecured claims on account of the debtor's guarantees of secured obligations owed by non-debtor subsidiaries. The debtors have proposed a prepackaged plan supported by plan sponsor Brookfield Strategic Real Estate Partners II Hospitality REIT II LLC. Brookfield holds all existing preferred equity interests and is the fulcrum security in the debtor's capital structure. The proposed restructuring contemplates the issuance of 100% of new common equity interests in the reorganized debtors to Brookfield. Brookfield has also agreed to fund a $65 million new money term loan debt. The filing was precipitated by the devastating impact of the COVID-9 pandemic on the company's hotel business and liquidity issues due to governmental shutdowns and resulting event cancellations and decline in overall travel. Under the plan, general unsecured creditors would be paid in full and existing common equity interests in debtor Hospitality Investors Trust, or HIT, would be canceled. And holders who would otherwise be out of the money absent the plan would each receive one contingent value right in respect of each share of the allowed existing common equity interests, outstanding immediately prior to the effective date. The CBRs would mature in five years from the effective date or earlier upon the occurrence of a monetization event. Brookfield's dip in preferred equity claims would share 100% of the new common equity interest. Additionally, 2% of existing preferred interest in debtor Hospitality Investors Trust Operating Partnership LP, or HITOP, the general partner of HIT, would be canceled, and the holders of such interests would receive a pro rata share of 2% of new HITOP interests. In a public hearing on Thursday, the Texas Senate Business and Commerce Committee discussed a committee substitute to the ERCOT Securitization Bill, House Bill 4492. After consideration and public testimony, the substitute was left pending in the committee for further deliberation. The substitute omits provisions related to extraordinary ancillary service and reliability deployment price adder charges that were incorporated in the House version, which passed through its originating chamber on May 6th. As passed by the House, HB 4492 provided securitization financing to fund unpaid short pay amounts that would otherwise be uplifted to the ERCOT wholesale market as well as ancillary service charges over $9,000 per megawatt hour and reliability deployment price adder charges that were uplifted to load serving entities, or LSEs, on a load ratio share basis through ERCOT's real-time ancillary service imbalance charge. Anthony Horton, representing himself and Just Energy as executive chair, testified against the substitute to HB 4492, describing the circumstance as a distress situation and claiming that ERCOT is technically insolvent. 
Horton also expressed doubts as to Just Energy's ability to emerge under a plan of reorganization if the securitization bills are not passed. Katie Coleman, representing the Texas Association of Manufacturers, testified in favor of the substitute, explaining that the substitute limits the unpaid short pay amounts to be addressed under the legislation to the default balances of the competitive entities that have left the market, and excludes the balance of electric cooperatives that remain operating in the ERCOT market. In a hearing this week on the Boy Scouts debtors' disclosure statement, their exclusivity extension motion, and their survivor constituency's estimation motion, Judge Lori Silverstein said that calling the cases challenging was an understatement and noted that although approving a plan without survivor support was not an attractive option, engaging in protracted litigation had the potential to, quote, end the Boy Scouts as it currently exists. Noting that there were 82,000-plus individuals who had filed abuse claims and needed to be appropriately and timely compensated, the judge said that she recognized the balancing act with the current Boy Scouts who wanted the organization to continue. Counsel for the debtors said that a reorganization as opposed to a liquidation was the only way to preserve the mission of the Boy Scouts and provide equitable compensation for victims. Counsel for the Tort Claimants Committee and the Coalition of Abuse Scouts for Justice argued that the debtors' proposed global resolution plan was a death trap and that neither the global resolution nor the so-called toggle plan were good solutions, noting that the viability of the proposed plan depended on the bankruptcy court's willingness to cram down the sexual abuse claims and that the plans would be voted down overwhelmingly. In connection with the debtor's exclusivity extension motion, counsel for the Tort Claimants Committee said that there is a detailed term sheet between the coalition and the TCC and that they may be able to get a plan on file within two weeks if exclusivity is terminated. Judge Silverstein did not rule on the debtor's exclusivity motion or the survivor constituency's estimation motion and continued the hearing disclosure statement to Monday, May 24th. Top Red Stories this week included... Carlson Traveling talks with note holders about potential cash need could require up to $200 million to cover cash burn in coming year. Hertz ad hoc bond group signals intent to vigorously argue for every iota of asserted make whole post-petition interest claims at confirmation. Debtors clear to continue solicitation process with Knighthood Sotari's plan. Delaware Chancery Court finds dissenting regal shareholders entitled to $0.60 cents a share above $23 Cineworld price deal. Dissenters had sought $10.83 premium. California District Court affirms application of federal judgment rate to unimpaired creditors' post-petition interest claims, rejects Judge Isker's contrary decision in Ultra Petroleum. Now, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you and good morning, folks. It's not what you'd call a hectic week ahead. School lets out for a lot of the kids. Speaking personally, I'll be off in the wilds of northwest Louisiana, the land of my people, along with Acadiana and south Louisiana, south Georgia, central Alabama, and west Texas. Sort of a precursor to a summer that I'm hoping to spend as far away from urban environments as possible. So anyways, on Monday, May 24th, a hearing in the matter of Cabell County versus Amerisource Bergen that's related to the opioid litigation. Tuesday, May 25th, status hearing in Chesapeake and a DS hearing in Purdue Pharma, also opioid-related. Wednesday, May 26th, DS hearing in Malincrote. Looks like we do have an opioid theme this week. Thursday, May 27th, there's nothing related to opioids, but there is an exit financing commitment and confirmation hearing in Automotive Taurus, Gildemeister. And Friday, May 28th, a status conference in Stoneway Capital. That's all for me. Enjoy yourselves, and just remember, a gator can run 20 miles an hour in short bursts. Those critters are truly a wonder of the natural world. Back to New York. And next up, Mike Legge and Sean Daly discuss the recent decision in the Sanchez Energy Bankruptcy cases in what may be a first, where the court has explicitly authorized the rejection of a midstream agreement despite the presence of covenants that, quote, run with the land. 
Hi, I'm Mike Legg. In this next segment, my fellow legal analyst Sean Daly and I are going to discuss a recent decision by Judge Marvin Isger that came out of the Sanchez Energy bankruptcy. This decision is interesting as it's the first decision in a recent trend of midstream contract rejection decisions to break out of hypothesizing in dicta and to actually authorize the rejection of a midstream agreement, despite the incorporation of real property covenants or covenants running with the land in the agreement. 2020 and 2021 have been interesting in many of the wrong ways, but for us bankruptcy nerds at Reorg with an interest in midstream rejection issues, 2020 saw a notable debtor-friendly trend in the case law, weakening both of the levers that midstream counterparties would traditionally pull for leverage in countering the rejection of agreements in bankruptcy. One, invoking the jurisdiction of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, which we won't discuss today, and incorporating covenants running with the land in the agreements. Reorg has been tracking this trend through our ordinary case coverage. Sean highlighted these emerging, emerging covenants running with the land issues in a podcast back in the fall of last year. And we ended up doing a deep dive review of a series of 2020 decisions back in the January webinar. These earlier midstream analysis efforts were much broader than what we have today, but we're honing in now on a ruling developed out of those decisions that actually holds that an executory contract containing a covenant running with the land can in fact be rejected. So courts following this trend have uniformly cited the Supreme Court's 2019 Mission Products Holding versus Technology decision, which clarified general contract rejection principles, though in the context of the rejection of a trademark licensing agreement. In the words of Justice Kagan, a rejection breaches a contract but does not rescind it. And that means that all the rights that would ordinarily survive a contract breach, including those conveyed here, remain in place, end quote. Again, uh, technology considered rejection of a trademark licensing agreement and the bankruptcy in code includes specific provisions dealing with intellectual property. But as I said, several courts have now applied its reasoning in the midstream context. Judge Jones in Chesapeake, Judge Sanchi in Extraction, and Judge Owens in Southland have all variously mused that this logic would essentially break the tie between incorporated real covenants and allow the contractual elements of midstream contracts to be rejected, just like any executory contract, while leaving whatever real, real property covenants exist in place. However, these discussions were all hypothetical as rulings in those three cases found that no covenants running with the land existed in the first instance. Now, with Judge Isker's May 6th decision, we finally have a case that crossed from dicta to reality. Hi, Sean. Thanks for taking the time to talk about this decision today. Um, having followed Sanchez and this issue for a while, how much of a surprise was this decision to you? Is did you see any irony given that Judge Isger's December 2019 Alta Mesa case, incidentally coming out after technology, was a touchstone for arguing that the existence of a running covenant would bar rejection? Or is this case distinguishable by its facts or other context? Hey, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me on. My girlfriend was not super excited to discuss this issue, so I, I appreciate having it. <laughs> glad I could, glad <laughs> I could step in. You, you, you know, can scratch sure. that itch. Yeah. Uh, so I guess maybe your, your last question first, is this case distin distinguishable on its facts? I mean, technically, rejection is a legal issue. So in, in theory, it shouldn't be. But, you know, it's never stopped a, a good creative bankruptcy attorney trying to, to get a judge's ear. Um, how much of a surprise was this decision? It's did all the opinions you noted last year were definitely a trend. 
Uh, and there's some, you know, there's some nice, compelling arguments, something that comes up in the FERC context as well as the covenant running with land context is that, you know, the, the general rule is any executory contract is, is rejectable. And then the burden is on the legislature to come up with specific exceptions to that, which they have done. So, you know, hey, you don't fit into one of those specific objections. Yes, of course, reject. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this, you know, this wasn't a, a shot in the dark or something. Uh, and as, as you noted, sort of everyone now is citing to this this very nice basic principle um, from technology and, and kind of porting it over from one very specific rejection context to to another one. Um, Alta Mesa, I guess the, the final point here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. So Isger in December 2019, a dispute between an upstream ENP and a midstream affiliate uh, holds, you know, real property covenants are not executory and are not subject to rejection. That was a, a quote from the opinion. Wound up, essentially the the two companies, the upstream, I believe, was in bankruptcy at the time, and then the midstream decided to file as well. You know, as a result of this opinion, they said, shoot, all right, let's file, run a joint sale process. Why not join the party? Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, to the point that there can be very real impacts from, from these decisions. Um, and then, so fast forward to Sanchez, and if you're just kind of squinting at it, you say, wow, well, you know, Isger, Isger came out no, now he's coming out. Yes, you know, it's wait, isn't he on both sides here? So, of course, the first thing he does in Sanchez is, is try to distinguish Altamesa, which is is a lot of fun. He says, you know, the party's focus in in their briefing on the presence of real property covenants is quote understandable based on his his prior ruling. Which oh, that's very generous of him to to understand how parties might be a little confused. you know. The Sanchez opinion goes on to say quote that point of the Altamesa decision could lead one to believe that a debtor cannot reject an executory contract, which creates a real property covenant. Uh, you know, who'd, who'd have thunk? Okay. That's what people did think before. Well, you know, some people. Well, in yeah. some cases, yeah, yeah uh, some people. So, you know, the opinion goes on uh, and, you know, threads the needle really nicely. If you're sort of in the, the pro, this all totally makes sense. There's nothing to see here, Camp. Uh, you know, the, the Sanchez opinion goes on to say, quote, although real property covenants are not terminated by rejection, the existence of a real property covenant does not prevent a debtor from rejecting its executory obligations in a contract. Uh, cites to technology, Sanchi and extraction. Uh, and, this, you know, this, this is a fair, fair way to thread the needle. Um, there was always kind of this tension in, in the language. You know, if, you, if you're saying the presence of a real property covenant uh, here, one example would be a covenant running with the land. If you're saying that's an absolute bar to rejection, there sometimes would be, would be a little a little kind of tiptoeing around the language of, well, you know, is is the covenant anything different from the agreement, right? Think you invert the problem and say you're talking to your your favorite leveraged finance attorney and you make some comment to them like, hey, this is you know this indenture, this bond indenture is a great covenant. You know, they look at you like you're crazy. What do you mean? There are like 75 covenants in this indenture. Um, so that was that was always kind of awkward, kind of, you know, is it is it one for one? And here, you know what? Fair enough argument. You could, you know, you could have this yeah. particular 
real property interest in Covenant, and then it just so happens to be in a in a larger you know uh, cannoli crust of an executory contract. And so yeah, you can of course you can reject you, that. You you car- carve out that chocolatey center and uh, leave leave the rest exactly. behind. Exactly. Yeah, well, uh, you know, how, how likely it is, is it, um, you know, uh, you know, given your coverage of the case and, and, and kind of the motivations of the party, uh, any, can you peer into your crystal ball and uh, tell us how likely you think it is that this uh, novel theory is going to be uh, tested by appellate review? Yeah, I'd say as a general principle, and this is something I, I think you and I covered in that webinar in January, is a lot of these things, like the, the general bankruptcy principle of funneling disputes to settlement, um, a lot of these disputes, you know, wind up getting settled out on commercial terms. Like, it's it's awesome. Everyone go out, enforce your legal rights. But, you know, if, if you're sort of, if you're looking at the cost and the time of operating under uncertainty, uh, you know, relative to the actual distance between the parties, you know, what are what are the... Uh, minimum volume commitments or the, you know, the, the amounts that you're trying to flow through a, a given, say, gathering system, uh, that drives people more often than not to the settlement table. And you see a lot of, you know, okay, even, even if you have parties that are obstinate enough to wait for a ruling, all right, whatever, that ruling just factors into your relative leverage in those settlement discussions. And then, yeah, you see appeals all the time sort of get discontinued or, or dismissed um, with, with prejudice. Although here, specifically, yes, there has been a notice of appeal filed. There were, were two sort of groups of contractual counterparties on the, on the losing side here. Uh, one filed a notice of appeal. The other actually filed a motion for reconsideration uh, on the idea that there, there were a ton of issues. Here, there's not only motion practice in the main case, sort of the, the rejection motion and then objections to that, also adversary proceedings, bringing up a whole host of issues and the idea was, okay, let's focus on uh, the, the rejectability and, and a couple other limited things and not get to the bulk of the other issues. So when Isger ruled and said, okay, yep, you can, you can reject, the act of rejection requires an exercise of the debtor's business judgment. Normally a super low bar, you know, it's, it's the classic, um, you know, very few people are drowning in six inches of water, even though you can do it. Uh, <laughs> But that was one of the things that, you know, was supposed to have been reserved. So, you know, arguably a little overstepping in the opinion. Um, And in this case, and I I can't recall offhand whether it was this adversary or there's another sort of parallel adversary proceeding with other parties. um, But there were two hearings on business judgment with the debtor CRO that uh, let's let's say, you know, we're maybe not, you know, as strong of testimony as, as the debtors would have liked. Um, so yes, here there is still an appeal, but you know the the currents of settlement always always flow strong. Well, prep prep your witnesses, people. <laughs> you know you gotta gotta make sure they they know what to say. You know, uh, but uh, well, given that you say it kind of oversteps a little bit, uh, do you, if if you were Judge Isger's law clerk, do you think there's anything you would have done to type, tighten up the drafting this opinion, or or cut back, or not overstep, or? Uh, I don't know. It's it's tough. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's my favorite opinion of all time. You know, your your sites are sort of um, you know look to Jones in uh, Chesapeake opinion in dicta 
in the fall. I forget if that's one of the ones you, you mentioned previously. He kind of, you know, yeah. came out and expressed some, some, uh, some thoughts. Uh, and this opinion cites heavily to that, or I should, instead of heavily, I, maybe I should say repeatedly. So, you know, if, if you look at the cites, it's not something I would have gotten an A for in law school. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Um, yeah. But again, it's tough. Well, you're kind you know, of you're venturing out into a into a new branch. So what do you what do you have to work with? Well, there's a, there's a long tradition of uh, Southern District of Texas bankruptcy judges relying on each other for a wide host of things, and including uh, legal support in this case of the this novel theory. So uh, you know, well, so this is you know, while this is kind of a novel development of a case law, you know, it, it really is kind of unclear what the practical results of this decision is going to really be, you know, both, you know, on the Sanchez parties here and, and kind of in general, you know, it's like drilling down into the opinion a little bit, uh, you know, Judge Isger says that, you know, real property covenants are clear examples of rights that are not terminated by a breach of a contract and that a given contract could convey countless other rights that might survive rejection consistent with technology. And it, it just seems like a real open question of what a counterparty is left with when the opinion says on one hand, Rejection does not strip Occidental of rights that would survive breaches outside of bankruptcy. Well, just in the preceding sentence states that rejection of the agreements and uh, alleviates Mesquite's burdens, the Mesquite being the reorganized debtor under those contracts. Uh, you know, given those two things, you only have potential rights against third parties. And, you know, what what is that? You know, how is that really going to shake out after you know an asset sale and uh, and post-bankruptcy distribution of whatever these uh, assets are. Right, yeah. Uh, It calls to mind the the line from Blades of Glory that was then later memorably uh, memorialized in the the Kanye West and Jay-Z song. Nobody knows what it means, but it's provocative. It gets the people going. Uh, Yeah, it just doesn't doesn't really say, leaves it open-ended. that, you know, on, on the one hand, right, I, I think you mentioned earlier, and there's, you could definitely look at this opinion and say, man, this is a real loss for midstream counterparties because, you know, the court has just ruled as, as a matter of law. Yes, you can, you can reject notwithstanding the presence of a covenant running with the land. It's, it's no longer an absolute bar, as, as some thought it was. Uh, so you could say, man, that's terrible. They lost on that. But the court doesn't say what happens next? So what does that mean? Okay, well, you just fight about that now. You know, if if you want to continue to yeah. be like an obstinate midstream counterparty in uh, in Judge Isgru's court, like, you know, you can fight the rejection in the first instance, and you still get this brand new, you know, nice shiny battlefield of arguing what are the practical implications. But that just also kind of comes back around to operating under uncertainty. People don't like that. You weigh the cost of litigation against what's, you know, what's the, the, I don't know, bid-ask spread between the parties. And maybe this just continues to funnel things towards settlement. So it doesn't, you know, maybe it isn't super debtor-friendly. Um, well, settle, settlement keeps the issue alive. But, you know, I mean, we do, you know, as we covered in our, our earlier webinar, we do have some tea leaves, some further tea leaves to read about kind of consequences here from 
from the, the, the kind of the dicta that the judges have gone into. And, uh, you know, Judge Isger, you know, in this case, didn't go nearly as far as some of these dicta statements went, which, uh, you know, uh, Judge Stanchi and Judge Owens both both kind of, uh, you know, muse that any existing rights could be unenforceable, not just against the debtor, but against third parties. And, you know, and just, you know, given these statements, you know, what what is kind of preserving or reserving real property rights post-rejection even give you as a practical matter? You know, I mean, Judge Sanchi's opinion stated, you know, in dicta, of course, that if any covenant running with the land still exists, it would be unenforceable against the debtors and their assigns after the rejection priority counterparties claims are satisfied as a part of the reorganization process. And uh, like Judge Sanchi, Judge Orleans concluded, you know, again, in dicta, of course, but that the midstream counterparty would not have any recourse against a subsequent purchaser of the assets and that any continued enforcement of the dedications contained in the agreement against the subsequent purchaser following rejection would be inequitable and against public policy because the counterparty would already be fully compensated by rejection damages. You know, this, this just kind of, to me, just kind of begs the question of, you know, okay, so you keep real property interests, but how real are they as a practical matter? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, man, I, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm just going to completely punt on that one. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, like I said, you know, settlement keeps keeps this issue alive, keeps it litigated, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, I guess it's just the Zen koan of how real are property rights that remained after rejection. And, you know, uh, I guess uh, an appellate court or if we're lucky, the Supreme Court will eventually square that circle for us, um, you know. Uncertainty is a great thing for us who love to talk about these things and great for those who can build to argue both sides of this mysterious issue. Um, anyway, thanks again, Sean, for your time. And uh, to our audience, if, if this piqued your interest, please do check out our bankruptcy industry write-up of the Sanchez opinion, as well as our January webinar. Uh, thanks again, and have a great week, everybody. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the reorg.com media page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. See you next Sunday.